0: Morning. Last night, uh, just around about eight o'clock, I got a phone call. It's um, Frank. Um, he was uh, phoning up because uh, he's getting low on bookmarkers and uh, he wanted a fresh supply. And uh, so, uh, but uh, as we as we talked, um, I, he's a real encouragement and. Uh, time to time he tells you about the people he gives bookmarkers to and without going into the details uh, one uh, particular man that he spoke to in the week uh, was in uh, quite a, a desperate situation and uh, he was able to uh, spend some time talking with him and uh, giving out that bookmark and during the course of the conversation I uh, mentioned to Frank that I was speaking this morning And uh, he said, what are you speaking on? And uh, I said, well, 1 Peter, the second half of chapter one, uh, or at least most of it, uh, beginning with, uh, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. And he said, I've got a poem on thoughts. (laughs) Uh, So uh, I'm going to read one of Frank's poems on thoughts. Actually, actually it's not the one that he read to me on the phone, but... um, When he was reading it to me, it kind of rang a bell that I'd kind of written up one of his poems a few years back. Uh, So I checked out my computer and uh, I thought, rather than actually try and transcribe over the phone, uh, this one seemed to tie in quite nicely. So this is Thoughts by uh, Frank Robbins. Sometimes we think we can think what we like. Nobody else need know. But Paul said, bring every thought captive to Christ. That is the way we should go. Thoughts are for a fleeting moment as they quickly slip by unobserved. Sometimes kind and gentle are often left unheard. There is one who knows our thoughts. He knows our motives too. Nothing can be hid from him. He sees everything we do. Do not try to justify your sins and failures to him. He already knows and is waiting for repentance, not excuses. Remember what it cost him to forgive our sin, cleanse and reconcile us to him. As one thought departs, others in our hearts wait to take its place. They got there like seeds of flowers and weeds germinating. Mm-hmm. As we choose to feed, if fed on the word on God's word, our thoughts may be heard, giving praise and glory Amen. to him. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Um that was actually written Got to remember not to keep walking away from this phone. Um, that was actually written on the 17th of March in 2012. Wow. Okay, and it's based around 2 Corinthians uh, 10:5 and Isaiah 55 verse 8. Okay, so this morning we're gonna continue our study of Peter's epistle. And by way of reminder, it was written to several churches in a region. Roughly equal in land area to the size of Great Britain in what today makes up northern Turkey. At the time of writing, the Christians in this area had begun to experience persecution. Largely taking the form of intimidation and prejudice rather than violence. But life for them, and indeed Christians throughout the whole of the Roman Empire, was about to get much worse. So Peter wrote this encouraging letter to prepare them, not teaching them how to avoid it, but how to patiently endure and give glory to God as they go through it. Now there are three key themes developed in this letter. Salvation, suffering and submission. If they were to stand firm under this persecution, Peter knew that they must have a sure understanding of their salvation, both from an individual aspect, which Peter deals with in most of chapter one, and from a corporate aspect, which he focuses his attention on at the end of chapter one, but mostly in chapter two. Later on in the letter... Peter taught them how to outwork their salvation in practical ways, encouraging them to develop a submissive attitude in all their relationships, in their relationships with civic authorities, with employers or slave masters, as was the case for many. How to be submissive in their family relationships and in their relationships within the body of Christ. Peter directed them to look to Jesus as their saviour and example, as the king who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So Peter began this letter by reminding his readers of that individual aspect of their salvation. And the first 12 verses, which we studied last time, concentrate on what God has done for us and in us. And we noted that the opening greetings give a clear reminder of the triune nature of the gospel. Salvation is the consequence of the decision of the father to make a way of salvation. It's been made possible by the sacrifice of the son and appropriated to repentant sinners by the Holy Spirit who convicts the world of sin. The motivation of the Father is mercy, gracious or undeserved compassion shown to one's enemies wholly in one's power. Although Peter made it clear that there is a past, present, and future aspect to salvation, his focus was on the future aspect of hope. For in times of great persecution, the Word of God directs his people to their future hope as an anchor. That keeps the soul. Today we will be focusing on how we are to respond to his initiative. We will be reading from verse 13 onwards. However, we must keep firmly in our minds what Peter wrote in verses 1 to 12. Otherwise, we would be reading an instruction to a helpless sinner that crushes him and drives him to a vain and presumptuous effort to earn God's approval. So let's now read 1 Peter 1, 13 through to 21. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, Not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the father who without partiality judges according to each one's work. Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish or without spot. He was, he indeed was, Foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Now, without wishing to copy Brian's example too much, uh, Brian has been bringing out of Philippians, exhortation after exhortation after exhortation. And I find myself, I look at this and straight away I see three exhortations. So Brian, your, your teaching is having a big effect on me. In verse 13, Peter gives his readers three exhortations. Gird up the loins of your minds, be sober and rest. Now all three describe attitudes and how we are to think. To gird up is the language of battle. It is what a man wearing a long robe would do if he were going into action, to gather up his garment between his legs and tuck it into his belt. It is therefore a call to take a decisive action and to prepare to resist assault. That's right. He is instructing them To get the things that he wrote in that first half of the chapter with respect to their salvation, get it settled in your minds, he's saying. It is similar to the instruction to put on the helmet of salvation that Paul gave to the Ephesians. He exhorts them to bring the full, rational and reflective power of their minds under control. The second exhortation, to be sober, means the ability to take a serious look at life and to get rid of loose and sloppy thinking. Now, some words are best illustrated when you consider the opposite. The opposite of sober is to be drunk or intoxicated. And people do this as an attempt to either escape or at least cushion the effects of reality. Now, it's not only through taking in substances that people do that. There is um, another type of drunkenness that we could call spiritual drunkenness, in which people try to escape reality either through uh, political or religious oppression or suppression through lustful and immoral obsessions, through personal spite and hatred. Peter is therefore calling them to, to sober-minded watchfulness so that they are alert and remain alert to the assaults of the devil. In the wilderness, Jesus experienced such an attack on his mind. If you are the son of God, was the strategy of the devil that he used to try to sow seeds of doubt. But Jesus' response demonstrated that his mind was fully focused on the Word of God. It is written, was his reply. The third exhortation tells them that they were to direct where to direct, to direct their thinking. They are to rest their hope upon the grace that Jesus will bring to them upon his return. The second coming of Christ is a sure hope, a future event yet to be realised. And this event is a certainty, it's not simply wishful thinking. The promise that he reminds them of is of the grace that is to be brought to them. Now this demonstrates that grace, the unmerited love of God that stoops to save and to bless will continue to be active in the future as it has been in the past, for it is by grace that you have been saved, past tense, and that it is operating in the present. In Romans 5 verse 2, Paul described that ongoing grace that defines our current standing before God. We have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And speaking of Jesus' return, the prophet Malachi asked, who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? Well, Peter has provided the answer. Those who will stand when he appears are those who have received his grace in the past, who stand in his grace in the present, and who will receive the grace that he will give to them upon his return. The fact that grace is still future means that there is more to come and that God has not yet revealed the full riches of his grace. Now, the grace in which we currently stand is as God's obedient children. This obedience, therefore, comes from a place of acceptance. We have been adopted as his children. This obedience is neither a condition of our acceptance, nor is it the means by which we gain acceptance. It is the consequence of having been accepted already. And as obedient children, we are to bear the family likeness. Now, this life of obedience begins when we are adopted as God's children and it involves a complete change. We do not continue as before. There is an evident change in our outward lifestyle as a consequence of inner transformation. For God has given us a new heart. This new life begins with repentance. Taking ourselves off the throne of our lives and fully submitting to God. Recognising that it is his right to rule and reign in our hearts and in our minds. It means no longer being conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. It means leaving behind our old lifestyle. Being set free from the sin that once controlled us. It means being completely broken off from the lifestyle of the world. That is characterised by a desire to To establish one's own significance through lust for power, lust for importance and lust for riches and beauty. Interestingly, the term obedience in Hebrew is derived from the word for hearing. Christians are therefore those who have hearkened to the gospel. They have turned from sin to submit themselves to Christ as Lord and Saviour. However, this new life that we've been called to is not so much about what we don't do as what we do. We are called, a calling to the intention and purposes of God. This calling is complete and universal, for it affects all our conduct. It is as we acknowledge the Lord in all our ways that he will direct our paths. It's a call to holiness. Now, this holiness does not mean instant moral perfection, although that is its ultimate destination when Jesus returns, for when he appears, we shall be like him. The sense of the meaning of holiness here is to be set apart, it's to do with apartness, being separate because God is separate. He is different from both, uh, from his creation, both in his essential nature and in the perfection of his attributes. Likewise, we are to be set apart in the world, but not of the world. Set apart for faithful service to him. Since he is holy. Holy. We are his representatives, we as his representatives are to live accordingly. We are to live as ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven and this should be evident in all our conduct. The motivation for which is our love for our king. And it was this attitude that the late Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, tried to instill in her daughters. She used to say, royal children, royal behaviour. In other words, it's a conduct becoming of the one you represent. In verse 17, we are once more reminded that this life that we've been called to live is from a position of acceptance. The God who called us is the father whom we call upon. The holy life to which we have been called is therefore relational, an intimate relationship with our heavenly father. God has adopted us as his children and we know him as father. Now, this does not grant us any privileged exemption to indulge ourselves just as we please, nor indeed does it grant us exemptions from the hardships and trials of this fallen world. Rather, it reminds us of our responsibility to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of our calling. Peter concludes verse 17 with an instruction to conduct yourselves throughout your stay here in fear. We are to view our lives as a temporary stay, a sojourn, which links back to his description of them as pilgrims back in verse two that we considered last time. The fear referred to here is not a soul destroying dread, but a reverent fear or an awe of the Father who judges man's work impartially. And we can draw comfort and assurance by the fact that the judge is the same Father who chose to save us. So as Christians, we should live in holy fear because we are so deeply loved and therefore we would not want in any way to despise that love. So the first reason, therefore, For lives characterized by reverent fear is the impartial judgment of the father. The second reason is the realization of the cost of our redemption. The precious blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God. Salvation is given to us as a free gift. A free gift that came at an enormous price. Not by corruptible things like silver or gold, but by the perfect sacrifice of Christ. As of a lamb without spot or blemish. So we've got the language of Passover here. Just as Passover lambs were without spot or blemish, so too was Jesus. Paul described him as Christ, our Passover. It is through the precious blood of Christ, our Passover, that we have been redeemed. Now, redemption is the language of the slave market. We have been redeemed, set free from the slavery of sin. Peter stated that they had been set free from the aimless conduct received by the traditions from their fathers. Now, people often think freedom means to be free to indulge themselves just as they please. Now, such a life has the appearance of free will. But really, they are simply confined to the traditions and expectations of the society they were born into and in which they live. In chapter four, Peter speaks about them having spent enough time in the past doing the will of the Gentiles. When they walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties and abominable idolatries. Speaking of Jesus as the Lamb of God, Peter tells us that he was foreknown before the foundation or the beginning of the world. Even before sin entered the world, God made provision for redemption. So what is the origin of sin and why did it enter the world? When God made the world, he made it perfect. There was no sin and therefore no sickness, disease or death. However, although God made the world perfect, it was made in such a way that there was the potential for sin. Because God made moral beings, both angelic and human. Moral beings with the capacity to choose to do either right or wrong. In Genesis chapter 3, we learn that sin had first entered the angelic realm before it entered into mankind, into the realm of mankind. The fact that the serpent, which the Bible later identifies as Satan, the fact that the serpent was more cunning than any beast and that he had, he tempted Eve indicates that he had already rebelled against God and was trying to entice Adam and Eve to do likewise. As a consequence of succumbing to his temptation, both Adam and Eve rebelled against God by eating the forbidden fruit. Death, therefore, became a reality in this world as a moral penalty for their sin. And since death entered the world, so did all the disease, suffering and disaster. All this affected not just humankind, but indeed the whole of creation. So one might ask, why did God create a world with the potential for sin and death? Well, this is a big and deep question. Well, let me give you an analogy which gives us at least some. This is not all that needs to be said. It gives at least some, albeit limited, insight into this deep question. Many of you are parents. And when parents decide to have a child... Most do so in the hope and expectation that the children will grow up in a relationship of mutual love and affection. However, sadly, things do not always work out like this, since the child has the potential to dislike and hate as well as to love. Now, given that, would the possibility that the child could hate as well as love, be a reason not to have children. God created moral beings capable of choosing right and wrong because the only context in which genuine love can occur is if they are free to choose. Love can only flourish then when it's given the freedom to do so. So God created a perfect world in which there was the potential for evil as well as good and by evil I mean what ought not to be done. So death, sickness, injustice, natural disaster were not part of the perfect world that God created. But they became a reality because human beings were made with the freedom to obey or disobey. And all of these came into the world as a consequence of God's moral penalty for Adam's sin. But God foreordained Send a Redeemer to pay the penalty for the rebellion of mankind, to set man free from sin, and to restore wholeness to his people and to his world. In Acts chapter 10, verse 38, Luke states that Jesus went around doing good, and by that he means that he healed the sick, he gave sight to the blind. He raised the dead and he calmed the storm. In doing this, he was demonstrating that he could restore people and nature to what they were created to be. Now, all of those he healed and raised subsequently died. However, the miraculous healings that were a prominent feature of Jesus' ministry in the first century provide ample evidence that he is not only able to restore all things but also that he will indeed restore all things in the future. Now what was foreordained has now been fully revealed. And Peter was an eyewitness and his readers believed on the basis of his testimony. The evidence that this will be fulfilled is the historical fact of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Our faith and hope are in God through him, Jesus, who was raised from the dead. Let us therefore consider something of the significance of the resurrection. You see, the resurrection did not simply carry Jesus out of the tomb. It carried him to the heights of his father's throne in heaven. And it is at the right hand of the father that Jesus rules until the day that he will come to renew and restore In Acts 3.21, we read that heaven must receive Christ until the time of renewal, a time still to come. And yet the great day of renewal began on the day of his resurrection. In Christ's triumph, God makes all things new, beginning with us, his people. We have been given new birth by the resurrection. The new birth... Is the change that God's grace works in us, for we have been born of imperishable seed through the living word that was planted in us. And the salvation that was sealed by Christ's resurrection and planted in our hearts by the seed of the word of God will be revealed completely when Christ comes again in glory. The hope on which we are to fully rest is anchored in the past. Jesus rose. It remains in the present. Jesus lives, and will be completed in the future, for Jesus is coming back. Now, in verses 22 to 25, Peter goes on to exhort them to the consequent outworking of their faith in sincere and fervent love, love of the brethren. And this serves as an introduction to a fuller discussion of the corporate aspect of their salvation, in which they are to understand and see themselves as individual parts of a greater whole. They are each living stones being built into a spiritual house. They are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation whose purpose is to glorify God in a hostile and unbelieving world. I believe that this needs to be considered more fully on a future occasion. So in closing, I just want to reflect on what we've learned about the individual aspects of our salvation from chapter one. Firstly, salvation is entirely the work of the triune God, the motivation for which is his abundant mercy. And God wants us to know the blessing of experiencing his grace and peace as an ongoing reality every day. The full riches of the grace that God has for us has not yet been fully revealed, since there is a future aspect to it that will be brought to believers at the revelation of Christ. And it is to this future aspect of salvation, inheritance, that we are to rest our hope, particularly as we endure fiery trials. This inheritance is kept for us in heaven where it cannot spoil or fade. And we are kept for it by the power of God through the faith that he has given to us. Salvation involves us being adopted as God's children. But knowing God as father does not grant us privileged exemption from either pain, hardship or persecution during our sojourn through this life. Rather, these all serve as a means to purify us and to prove the genuineness of our faith. The Christian life is therefore a battle for which we need to get our thinking straight. We therefore need to be sober in our thinking. To be sober, we learned, is to be realistic. For Christian realism knows the actuality of sin. And the folly of man's philosophies that seek to deny it. Sober reflection is the opposite of the lustful inebriation that often characterises the world's thinking. And sober watchfulness grows in the practice of prayer. Yet Christian sobriety is not joyless gloom, but glad hope in the new order that is to come with Christ. In the light of this, as Christians, we are to live as obedient children who love their Heavenly Father and who recognise that we are representatives of a new humanity in Christ. And this high calling makes sense in the light of the price paid for our redemption. The precious blood of Jesus did not save us so that we could live aimlessly indulging ourselves in the doubtful pleasures of worldly immorality. Finally, we learned that redemption was planned before the foundation of the world and substantiated by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It is upon this historical fact that we can rest our hope, a joyful hope that manifests itself in an alert wisdom that seizes opportunities to serve our Lord. And as we spend time meditating on these things, we will come to a clear understanding of what it means to live like we're born again. May God bless you all.